This is the EPLOG audio experience. Film is clearly a sophisticated art, possibly the most important art of the 20th century with a rather complex history of theory and practice, writes James Monaco in his book How to Read a Film. So far in our podcast, The Artists, we have had filmmakers, writers, critics, programmers from some of the top film festivals, musicians, thinkers, defining their combinatorial skills. We at Metaphysical Lab have been striving to expand the realm of our podcast, which in turn gives a wider uh, canvas to the understanding of our experiences. And also we have tied up with Epilog Media, the podcasting network. So you can find us on their website, epilogmedia slash the artists. And of course, you can continue to listen to us on the platforms that you choose from Apple Podcasts to Spotify to GeoSavan to Google Podcast. Everything is mentioned in the description. And of course, you can reach us uh, on the WhatsApp number and our email ID. I'm your host, Suchita, and I'm looking forward to a wonderful journey ahead with all of you. Happy New Year, guys, and we are on the 90th. Eighth episode of the Artist Podcast. Yes, we're heading to the hundredth episode, but that's not what we're going to talk about. And we are definitely not going to talk about the curfews and the lockdowns again. What we're going to talk about is about the transformations and about the change that so many people out there are trying to bring in millions of life. And that's what our guest for today is about. Today we have with us Leslie Udvin. Leslie made this amazing documentary, The India's Daughter, on the life of this brutal and heinous rape that happened in the year 2012 uh, with Nirbhaya, the case I'm sure all of you, all of us know about. And Leslie, after that, started Think Equal. She's the founder and executive chair of this global not-for-profit education. And Think Equal is currently impacting the lives of 1,70,000 children in 20 countries. It is being endorsed by the likes of Meryl Strip and Susan Sarandon. And it's something that is designing the future of the world. And I'm so grateful Leslie could take out time and be part of this podcast. Enjoy this talk. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to our podcast, The Artist. And thank you for taking our time. It's so good to have you. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's, that's a surprise. <laughs> there you go. That threw you. <laughs> well, you have been, you have, you've spent a, a, a very long time in India or it was just during the making of this very important documentary, India's Daughter, that I had the good fortune to watch that you caught on the language? No, I have uh, spent a lot of time in India. In fact, um, the last uh, uh, trip was to make India's Daughter, of course. Um, mm. But I I'd made a film called West is West there, which was a sequel to a previous film I'd made called East is East. And we filmed that in the Punjab. I, I lived for six months in Chandigarh and the surrounding areas. Wow. Um, and of course, uh, from East is East, which I had made not in India, but in, in the UK, uh, but with Om Puri starring, mm-hmm. um, Om and I became very, very close friends. And uh, I went to visit him a number of times 
quite apart from going and, and working there on, on films. So, you know, I'm an India file. I, I love, love um, uh, India, the Indian culture, Indian people, um, so much about, about the country. Wow, wow, fantastic. Leslie, you're a multi-award winning filmmaker and now you are a human rights activist doing such an important work with Think Equal and I would really want you to talk in detail about it. But just continuing with Making India's Daughter that I watched and that sort of really shook me in terms of the way you went inside this whole conversation and dug the story out and that was also a turning point for you to start Think Equal. The film is not released in India, Leslie, and we, nobody, I believe, have seen it, but abroad, a lot of people have seen it. What's your take on that? Well, the first thing to say is that uh, I know that within an hour of the BBC version of the film being put out mm. back in 2015, mm. 60 million Indians had seen the film. Wow. So it's not true to say that no one mm. in India has seen it. In mm. fact, what that ban did mm. was very much ensure mm. that Indians around the world would see it. Um, so, you mm. know, you can't really ban a film in a digital age. It's naive to think you can. Yes. It's not possible. Yes. Um, and... I mean, you know, to ban a film like this is is very short-sighted, I believe, because, mm. you know, especially since the film actually at the end of it mm. uh, lists the statistics of several countries around the world and makes the absolute um, climactic point at the end of the film that mm. there's not a single country in the world that's immune from this, you know. Uh, so, so for the fact is that that brutal gang rape happened in India. There were several other brutal gang rapes which I might have covered, but I didn't cover them. Why did I not cover them and cover this one? Hmm. Because of the reaction to this gang rape in India. If those courageous and amazing people who poured out onto the streets of India's cities hmm. had done so in any other country in response hmm. to any other rape, I would have made a film about that case in that country. Mm -hmm. The fact is that actually what drew me to go to India and drew me to the case mm. was not the rape itself. I mean, <laughs> it's mm. tragic to say these rapes are ubiquitous and there is no one rape that one can point to and say, oh, well, that was a really brutal one. Every mm. rape is brutal. Yes. Every act of violence is an abuse of human rights. Um, so, you know, what drew me to the, to the uh, uh, subject and to making that film was not the actual rape. Mm. It was the response to the rape. And I went to India to make the film because I genuinely believed, naively I now admit, but at the time I was absolutely convinced that I was living through the beginning of the end of violence against women because I've never seen a country stand up with so much courage and so much passion and commitment to saying, no more, we're not having this anymore, we're not putting up with this anymore. Mm. And yet, of course, it passed, like any protest sadly passes, as long-lived a uh, protest as it is. I mean, that protest went on for over a month, mm. uh, and yet it still came and went. Uh, you know, no movement, no Me Too movement, no protest can do it. What we have to do is change the mindset. 
And until and unless we do that, we will make absolutely no headway mm. in alleviating um, vi violence against women, um, in reaching equality. And, you know, it's not just about gender. Mm. It's about all forms of equality. It's about caste. It's about color. It's about race, religion. You know, at the end of the day, if you accord less value to another human being, yeah. then you'll, you'll act accordingly. And that is what these rapists in that case did. And that is what all rapists in all cases do. Mm. They see that girl as subject to different regulations or, or rules. Mm. In this case, uh, those rapists on that bus basically said, well, this girl was out at night after dark. She mm -hmm. was a bad girl. Yeah. She was with a man who wasn't her husband or her brother. She was a slut. That is what they said, and that is how they justified. And in fact, they said to me, she not only deserved what she got, we had a right to teach her a lesson. Now, who has taught them that, Suchita? Yes. Who has taught them that? Mm -hmm. You cannot simply, when men say something like this, uh, say, oh, well, you know, we are nothing to do with them. These are animals, depraved creatures who, you know, are outside of society. They're a very mirror to society. We have taught them how to think. And the first thing we need to do if we want to change anything is to be accountable. We have to take responsibility and say, if we teach our children how to think, we are teaching them how to act. Right. We are culpable in all of these continuous and ubiquitous um, violations of human rights around the world. Right, right. You mentioned 60 million Indians watched the film when it was yes. on YouTube. Did you get any sort of mails or calls or anyone trying to connect Massive. to the filmmaker? Um, wow. Massive amount. I mean, literally, it was a deluge and it went on and on and on for over a year. Mm. Um, I, I reached the point where I literally had to switch social media off and say, you know what, engaging in this is not going to get me anywhere. Um, because at the end of the day, I have to look to the future generation you know, we are all programmed, every single one of us. Mm. Anyone above the age of six has to put enormous effort into changing the discrimination that we have been passed down cyclically, generationally, by our parents, by our cultures. And I mean every culture in the world, right? It just mm. expresses itself in different ways. But it's no different. The patriarchal culture in the UK is exactly the same as the patriarchal culture in India or Saudi Arabia or the US or Canada or France. It doesn't, it, it, all that's different is what are the rules and regulations uh, and expectations? Mm. How is a girl viewed? So it's the, in the granular detail that the differences lie. But the mechanism is exactly the same. You either look at another human being and say, this person, regardless of their gender, their color, their race, whatever it is, this person is of absolute equal value to, to me. Hmm. Or you don't. And if you don't do that, you're in deep trouble. Did you get any threatening calls, mails? Oh, yeah. Why was the film banned? Well, if I really tell you why the film was banned, I'll break your heart. And if you really want to know, I'll tell you, because I don't hold anything back. I mean, for me, truth hmm. is very important to be spoken. Do you really want to know why the film was banned? Yes. The film was banned because the, not the, but some, a handful, and I can name them, of very prominent 
feminists in India, mm-hmm. and I can name them, mm-hmm. Vrinda Grover, Urvashi Butalia, Kavita Krishnan, Indira Jaising, Devki Jain, those are the names I know for sure, mm-hmm. actually went to a magistrate and said, ban this film. And why? Well, <laughs> it's so petty and so disgusting that it pains me to even think about it, let alone repeat it. But I found out why mm-hmm. uh, when I addressed a whole group of some 200 Oxford students at Oxford Uni- University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a panel discussion, particularly about the ban on the film. And, and the discussion was about censorship in India. Mm-hmm. And on that panel were three of us, um, me, obviously as the filmmaker of the banned film, Dr. Devki Jain was on the panel. And at a certain point, I heard her say, and my jaw dropped to the floor, and I couldn't believe my ears, but I heard her say, mm-hmm. now, of course, uh, we regret having called for the ban, but, and I just flew off the handle, and I shouted, I went ballistic, actually, mm. and said, you did what? Repeat what you just said, and then I just started yelling at her, and I said, you're not working for women. If you called for that ban, then you are working against women. Um, And then, of course, it got very heated, and she literally said to me, word for word, I'm remembering it now, I can never forget it. Mm -hmm. Thank God there were many, many students in that room who witnessed what I heard, what I heard, or I would have thought I was losing my mind. It was so surreal and unbelievable. But uh, we all heard her say, do you want to know why I was so angry with you? I'll tell you why I was so angry with you. Mm. And I said, tell me why we're so you're so angry with me. And mm. she said exactly this, because you chose the 8th of March. Oh, my God. To which Mm. I had to explain to the audience what she meant by that. Mm. Um, Not that I immediately understood fully, but I just said, (laughs) look, if if she's referring to the 8th of March, the only significance of the 8th of March is it's International Women's Day. That was the day that I persuaded seven broadcasters around the world to join hands metaphorically and say, we all own this problem. This isn't an India-centric problem. This is a problem we hear in Sweden, in Canada, uh, who else was there? The Denmark, uh, UK, um, US, these countries were all going to screen the film at exactly the same time in this symbolic gesture because Mm. it was International Women's Day. And I turned to her and said, well, of course we chose the 8th of March. And this is word for word what she answered me. She said, you knew how many events we had planned on that day. Mm. I'm sorry, Suchita, but, you know, you asked me why it was banned. I've told you why it was banned. Unfortunately, uh, we are territorial, we are ego-driven, and it's a tragedy. It's Mm. a full-on tragedy, although at the end of the day, it matters not to me. It really doesn't. Because what can a film really achieve? I've come to learn a film can only achieve awareness. Do we really need more awareness? Mm. We don't need more awareness. What we need is action. And I've actually left filmmaking for that very reason. Yes. Yes, yes. But but how did Leslie, you have done 31 hours of interview with the perpetrators. I was reading in detail. How did you manage to communicate with 
with them also in terms of a very different socioeconomic strata how did you communicate at the human level to take things out of them well i tell you it was a a, a complete reversal of what my expectations were mm-hmm. i thought i would be furious angry in fact so much so that i had asked the director general of the prison to do me the favor of allowing me to practice on certain rapists uh who i didn't need for the film because of course the film was very tightly focused on the jyoti singh uh sola december nearby case um and i was so frightened that i would actually physically assault one of these rapists that the hatred uh that i felt personally um for for someone who had raped me at 18 um would would rise up and and overwhelm me i was literally terrified because uh when i was raped at 18 i kept it to myself for 20 years Oh my god. I didn't even tell my best friend Suchita because in my day I'm a good deal older than you in my day um I mean even now it's still true shockingly so but in certainly in my day I knew that I would have a fingers pointed at me and said well why did you trust him what were you doing there why did you well he told me there was going to be a party uh, a barbecue that's why I went uh but you saw there were no other people why didn't you turn on your heels and leave and of course i wanted to i felt that i felt the instinct to leave but i didn't do that in time right so knowing that the finger would be pointed at me and i would somehow be blamed for bringing this on myself right mm. made me be absolutely dead quiet about it and then i feared well when i sit in these prison cells facing these men who have done this to other women Uh, and in some cases murdered them of course i'm going to flare up all of these ghosts will come rising up and overwhelm me and overpower me and you know what is amazing suchita mm-hmm. as much as not a single one of them not even the guy who i first interviewed and practiced on called godov who had raped a 5 year old girl not even he felt any remorse or regret for what they had done they justified it they genuinely didn't think they had done wrong and that's for a very particular reason because they've been programmed mm. you see the guy who raped the 5 year old told me absolutely with an even uh, um you know uh, attitude with without with equanimity without any sense of uh, guilt or shame well she was a beggar girl her life was of no value quote unquote word for word what he said to me her life was of no value well he's taught that isn't he robots who have been programmed robotically by a socio-cultural thinking how can they express remorse uh for the same reason i felt no anger how can you be angry at a robot who has been taught to think that way it was so obvious with every single answer and you know at the end of the day suchita they were human beings So that is what we have to understand and if we don't if we don't accept that that we have a hand to play mm-hmm. uh an active hand to play in these crimes of you know violation uh, of of rights these crimes that see others as of lesser value well we're never going to change it mm-hmm. you know it's strange that you mentioned that they did not feel any remorse none not for one second and 
is that specifically you think that it's related to maybe a country like india where no, and all, no. it's not hmm. no hmm. absolutely not look let's take a, a quick look at a case that has been very very prominent here i mean some would call it although i don't like these kind of uh, you know comparisons are odious to me i mean at the end of the day any rape in any country of any girl or woman um is is uh, you know a, a complete brutal violation of rights full stop um but some would call the uh, case of of um uh, Sarah Everard in in the UK mm. um fairly recent case um uh, the the India's daughter of the UK or Britain's daughter whatever the hell you want to call mm. it right mm. because here was a case where a policeman for 3 years within the police force was called nicknamed the rapist by his police colleagues why because of what he had on his phone because of the jokes he made because of what he spoke so at the end of the day it's all about culture culture trumps law the 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 rapists of of nirbaya have now either committed suicide or of course one of them was released after 3 years because he was a juvenile mm. um the others the other four have been hanged mm. earlier this year mm. is that going to make any difference not a jot of difference in fact if mukesh is to believed who is the one who you know the driver of the bus um who's who's the one i spent 16 hours with um if he's to be believed well what he said to me when when i asked him would men now you know be be concerned to not be hanged and therefore rape will be uh, diminished as as a result of india bringing in hanging uh, as a penalty for rape mm. because of this case he just looked at me and shook his head and <laughs> said no now they'll just murder the girls after they rape them so that they can't be identified change the mindset yes that's that's the bottom line but but how difficult would that be for the girl who has gone through this you mentioned and i don't know if you would be comfortable to add a couple of more lines there in terms of you being raped when we, you were 18 years old lesley this is yeah. so heart wrenching and it's so difficult must be so difficult to just trust another human after that to live another how what would you like to add a bit there if you well i will because again you know things this was surprising to me too mm. um when i think back yeah. uh, and you know for a lot of years i have to admit i pushed it away i sublimated it because it wasn't useful for me to live my life traumatized okay so i did everything i could to push it down and push it away which is why i was so fearful when i got into those prison cells that it would come up and jump out at me yeah. right um but here is this the, the strange thing that i realized in retrospect the way i made it okay for myself because i had nobody to share this with the first person i talked to about it was my husband just before we got married and that was when i was 38 so for 20 years literally i kept it to myself how did i make it okay for myself he was fairly violent this guy and i was really scared that he would kill me and rather ridiculously i would tell myself you are lucky he only raped you you could be dead he didn't kill you imagine having to be grateful 
that you haven't been killed and only raped. But that's the truth. That's how I processed it for myself. Mm-hmm. And how did, if I if I just want to just broad a bit there, how did that transform your life in terms of a person, a human being? Was that also a point of you moving ahead and becoming a filmmaker? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I mean... Before that point, uh, I was always going to be within this um, metier or this sphere of work. Uh, I, I had always wanted to be an actor. That's I started off actually being an actor. And I was an actor for several years, um, I, I think until I was about um, late 20s or, or early 30s, and, and a very happy, very successful actor. And then I became a producer because something rather unusual happened to me in my own life, uh, actually to do with a, um, a, a, a psychopath landlord uh, who was threatening our lives and trying to get us out of the building that we were living in. Um, and I sort of, um, you know, took over the mantle of the tenants organization and gathered other houses in, in the borough um, that, that were dealing with the same problem and spent two and a half years fighting this guy and finally set a, a legal precedent in the high court. And at that point, I thought, you know what? I have to control what the story is, not just be the vehicle for the story to be told through, which is what acting generally is. And um, I, that's when I decided I'm going to become a producer. And the first film I made as a producer was for television, actually, uh, Granada and HBO. Um, and um, that film released from prison six Irishmen called the Birmingham Six who were uh the victims innocent victims of one of the worst cases of british miscarriage of justice there has ever been and these men spent 16 sorry 17 years wrongfully imprisoned for a crime they didn't commit because of the essentially racism um uh against uh, against or discrimination rather uh, against the irish hmm you know by mm. the british mm-hmm. so um that's how i became a producer and then i became a director because when i went to india to make india's daughter i went on an impulse i didn't go with money raised um i went on my own pocket basically mm-hmm. and i knew i couldn't afford to hire a director um so i i knew i had to direct it myself and of course you needed the right contacts and the permissions to shoot something like this is was not going to be easy thing trying to get no. to the authority no but at the end of the day you know what is extraordinary is a lot of um a lot of editors um were utterly furious with their with their journalist staff because they thought how does this gory come in here <laughs> an outsider right and right. get permission What's right. wrong with you, my team, mm. my crack team of journalists? Why have you not been in to mm. Tihar jail and interviewed rapists, etc., or get those particular interviews? Mm. Um, I suppose the answer is that when you are an outsider, it, you have a huge advantage because you are not seeing things the way local people see them in terms of the obstacles facing you. Yeah. I bet you that no journalist there even asked because they assumed that permission would never be given. Yes. 
But of course permission would, why would permission not be given? It's a very rational, reasonable thing to do. I remember the day the film was banned, or, or rather the day after the film was banned, and I was sitting in NDTV studios. Um, I felt the safest place for me to be uh, because there was an FIR put out against me, etc. And I thought, well, the only safe place really to be is in front of a television camera in a studio talking to Prime Minister Modi mm. and asking him to, to realize and understand that really this film was uh, exactly a mirror to his Betty Bachao, Betty Parao pro, uh, program yes. and, and mm. campaign. Mm. And that, you know, um, the, the, the thing to do is not to bury one's head in the sand or bury one's head in shame, because actually, as the film shows, every country, every country around the world has this ubiquitous same problem. And we should be banding together and finding ways of, of combating this and dealing preventatively with the, with the problem, not after the fact, you mm -hmm. know, which is yeah. what we've become so adept at doing. Um, but uh, on that, one of those panels, I remember the wonderful, amazing Kieran Beddy, who I very much admire, who's now, I think, governor of Pondicherry, isn't she? Yeah, yes. Um, but Kieran had once been um, commissioner of police, as far as I recall. I hope I'm right about that. But certainly she was a governor of Tihar jail at one time. Um, I think, I think I'm right. Anyway, what Kieran said on that panel made total sense. She said, I have been saying for years, every rapist needs to be interviewed by us. We need to understand why they do what they do. And of course, uh, Leslie, this, mm. this film turned out to be the turning point in your life and you quit filmmaking and, yeah. you, and you started Think Equal, which is now being sort of, it has so many endorsements and so many people talking about it, right from Susan Sarandon to Meryl Streep to so many people out there in, um, in, in Hollywood yeah. and everywhere else, the thought leaders, thinkers. Tell me... Leslie, in terms of the mission of Think Equal. Right. So, look, the minute I realized that we had taught these men, Nirbhaya's rapists, mm. to think as they thought, yeah. the next obvious question is, what could have intervened and taught them that actually she had the right to go to that mall at night just as they do? Mm. What could have intervened and changed the narrative? Mm. And I, I remembered thinking at a certain point that it was their lack of education that was a factor and then realizing very forcibly by interviewing their lawyers who were just as discriminatory and misogynist as the rapists were, just as programmed, in other words, mm. I realized that actually uh, the lack of education in the rapists had nothing to do with it because the high education achieved or attained by those lawyers made no difference either. Yes. They were still saying, <laughs> they were yes. still saying if that, you know, if Jyoti Singh had been my daughter, I would take her to my farmhouse, pour petrol on her in front of my whole family and burn her alive. Yes. And by this point, the men were, were convicted. They were sentenced to death already. It's not that the lawyers were arguing in defense of their clients. They were just voicing their own discriminations, which were identical to the rapists. And at that point, I remembered Nelson Mandela saying, Education is the most powerful weapon we have to change the world. 
that rang totally true to me because I thought, yes, indeed, if we need to change mindset, how can we do that except through education? But here's the critical question. What kind of education? Mm. Because it's not the education the lawyers had. Yes. It's not anything to do with, you know, the, the lack of education or the system of education the lawyers got, which is what, you know, the broken system we give our children, numeracy, literacy, pretty much that's it, right? So if it's not that, what is it? Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that I, I went back again to Mandela's writings and looked and looked and searched until I found what I believe was his definition of education when he said that education is the only way we can really change the world. He meant this. He said, no child is born hating another human being because of the color of their skin, their race, their gender, their religion, or any other background. A child has to be taught to hate. Mm. True. And if he can be taught to hate, he can be taught to love. And that is when, for me, the penny dropped. And that's the moment at which I thought, okay, this is what I now need to do mm. for the rest of my life, is find out how to teach children to love. Uh, then, of course, I had to do a lot of research to find out at what age does a child develop a sense of identity? Mm. At what age is the child's brain neuroplastic, malleable, when is the best time to mediate this teaching that we are all equal, teaching children to have empathy, to be inclusive, to solve problems, to have um, uh, peaceful conflict resolution, emotional literacy, emotion regulation, all of these critical competencies and skills, gender equality. We Mm. need to teach this to our children because where else do we think they're going to learn it from? The, the internet, mm-hmm. the billboards, mm-hmm. the films that depict women in particular ways as sexualized objects? Is that where we think they're going to learn this kind of respect and to value others? Of course not. Mm. So we have to come in with a prevention program, an intervention. And what I discovered was every single neuroscientist in the world is in agreement. It has to happen before the age of six. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. After the age of six, you need therapy. You need many years, many, you know, trillions of rupees Mm. and and years of unlearning and relearning. Why not do it right in the first place? Mm. Do you know how much Think Equal costs? 50 US cents per child, not per day, not per year, for life, for life. Over a 10-year period, amortized, because the materials we give, it's a one-off cost. We give all the materials, the training, the hand-holding for a year, so the teachers are with us. We're there to answer questions, to uh, interact with them, to have focus groups, etc. And that is all a one-off at cost. We are a charity. We are not there... We're not allowed to make money and we don't want to make money. Mm -hmm. Okay, we just want to reach children with this empowering program that gives them the chance to positive outcomes in life so that they can grow up and not rape. So that they can grow up and not rape. 
I, I read this on the website and very important quote from Aristotle saying educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. Correct. So when we're talking about this, Leslie, and when you're talking about, you know, educating the the, the kids under six, the social, social and emotional learning, as, yeah. as you call it, with 26 key principles, 26 key s- skill sets that are actually soft in, uh, in nature from empathy to inclusiveness to gender equality to emotional intelligence, emotional resilience and more. Are you talking about, uh, are you talking about just specific countries and specific socioeconomics or, or do you want to like go world over, whether it's India, whether it's Africa, whether it's US, everywhere? Yeah. So let me tell you, we already have gone um, hmm. to all the continents that exist. Are you there in we India? We are currently, yes, we are in India. Okay. Hmm. Uh, so far in 630 Anganwadis across oh, um, six states. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are growing exponentially every week in wow, India. Wow. We are now in whole states or provinces in certain countries in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. Mm-hmm. We are with every single five-year-old, 94,000 of them in the entire province. Mm-hmm. Imagine now what is going to happen in 10 years' time when you have a whole generation of 15-year-olds who are not going out on a Friday night to find a girl to gang rape, which is the sport of a Friday night in the Eastern Cape and other parts of, of certain countries, right? Mm. That's, how you, that's your rite of passage. That's how you become a man. You go out in a gang looking for a girl to gang rape, literally. Mm. Mm. These kids are not going to be doing that. These kids are not going to be carrying knives and inflicting, you know, they're not going to get depressed and commit suicide. That's another thing. We have to look after our boys as well, you know. We are really negligently letting our boys down by pressing them into these misshapen straight jackets of emotionless uh, hell by saying, man up, don't cry like a girl, you know, your responsibility is to do this and this. Why is it that in the UK where I live, the number one killer of our young men under 40 is suicide? More than drugs, more than drink, more than road accidents or cancer, suicide. We are letting our children down, all of our children. Mm -hmm. But don't you think, Leslie, that all these soft skills that you're talking about, while it's important to teach the kids under six and to make the foundation strong, this is something that's as important and in fact maybe perhaps more important when you're getting inside the boardrooms now, when we are talking to grown-up men. What do we do about that? Well, I agree with you completely, but I'm a realist. Mm. And I'm afraid I also can't just be a a bland optimist. Mm. And I'm sorry to tell you that by definition, men who are in boardrooms... Um, are above the age of six. Yes, that's what. So what? What? That's what, a what, problem. It's what, a real problem because yeah. you know we are a world that is so apathetic, indifferent, arrogant, selfish, and uncaring. Now mm. we don't even have the motivation to do this when it's easy, when it's ridiculously cheap. I'm having to go around persuading governments to take this on, persuading networks of schools, etc. You know, and when they come across the program, they look at it and they think, oh, my God, of course, this can work and should work. Well, we've been doing it for four years now. We have two RCTs, uh, randomized control tests. We proved that it works. And there's ample evidence from 60 plus years when you get in early 
And when you do it concretely, you see, we may call them soft skills, but Suchita considered this. Hmm. The neural connections, the synaptic connections in the brain and the neural pathways that are formed in the physical architecture of the brain, the way it works yes. on a scientific level. Yeah. Those connections are as concrete, as hard. They're made in exactly the same way as the connections, um, you know, in the cerebrum, which are engaged in mathematical equations. There's no difference mm. in the physical process of how the brain develops and how the brain functions. So soft skills, hard skills, basically what all we need to do is get in as as equal partners in learning with our children, mm -hmm. respect them, give them what is their right to a positive future life. Mm -hmm. And with these tools and books, we have 24 books across three levels. That's, we have about 80 books in total over three years, uh, starting with three-year-olds, ending with you know the, the six-year-olds. We have lesson plans, bullet point by bullet point, um, encouraging debates and, and discussions between the children. And I mean, I've seen this with my own eyes. The children are transformed at this time in their lives. They are much, much more able to, uh, to, to learn. They're much smarter than we are, mm -hmm. you know. 90% of the adult brain is fully formed by the age of five. And in those early years, the neurons are firing at the rate of one million synaptic connections per second. Suchita, I can't even conceive of that, mm -hmm. but it is a scientific fact. Mm -hmm. So the bottom line is, if we go in as partners in learning, understanding why we're doing this, we're equipping the next generation. So just just, just adding uh, to what you have just mentioned, one thing, one question comes to my mind is that a, a couple of things, if you would like to mention, how do you teach empathy to somebody? Ah, a. very good, very good question and very important question. Now, you know, that is the one area where I might just be... Um, well, what's the word? <laughs> I might take credit for having mm. contributed something to Think Equal, because at the end of the day, you know, I genuinely believe I'm just a vehicle uh, through which this has to happen. And this sure. systemic change in education has to take place. And I happen to have had that experience of sitting in those prison cells. And if I hadn't done so, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, but at the end of the day, I knew I was no expert and I had to bring the experts in. And that's why the first thing I did was gather together 22 top experts around the world to to do that work with and for this organization. Right. But the one thing I knew as a filmmaker, a former filmmaker, story and character is the only way that you can really experience empathy. Now, it is one thing to say to a child, put yourself in that person's shoes. Come on, think about what it feels like to be that person. This, this doesn't work. This is a theoretical exercise, right? Mm -hmm. To think about what someone might, might be feeling or thinking is, it, it's an academic 
um, uh, process of deductive learning only. It's thinking, okay? Mm-hmm. But you have to involve the amygdala and you have to involve the emotions. Mm-hmm. And the closest way I know as a filmmaker that you can come to being another person is in a darkened space, as it were, right? To focus on this story and these characters or this character and go on that same journey with them. And you are forgetting about who you are in that process and on that journey. Mm. You're not thinking about your own selfish concerns and you're giving yourself over to the experience of another human being. And that is why we have narrative as the spine of Think Equal. It makes it very, it's a very unusual um, uh, USP, if one can call it that, um, Mm -hmm. of the program. Here was a group of 22 individuals who came together selflessly and said, you know what? And I think it was the the extreme story of what I had learned in those prison cells, you know, that played its part in making these people think, oh, my God, this actually has to be tried, you know. We have to try to teach uh, social justice. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. What a great work you're doing, Leslie. But I just want to prod a bit more in terms of the question is that it's great to, you know, the the foundation of the kids is going to be great, you know. But right now, at this point, uh, you know, when you are in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s ahead, the population that we are living with right now, Mm. interacting with day in and day out, the mindsets, the culture, the socioeconomic status, how do you, how does an individual like me, like like my neighbor, like like you deal when we're going out and, uh, you know, interacting with uh, people generally, you know, how do you, how can we on this right now create a difference yeah. in the mindset? Well, let me say it is really, really important that we um, just focus on the fact that until we start preventing We're going to keep on dealing with the same individuals who have learned the wrong thing in the wrong way from the wrong sources. Mm. If we don't start now, it's never going to end. This cycle will never end. And we will literally move to catastrophe as we are doing already uh, at the most alarming rate um, and get less and less. Um, caring, we we become more and more indifferent, the more violence we see, the more used to it we get, uh, the more wealth we are told to accumulate, the more selfish we get, etc. This doesn't get any better. How do I deal with people and I meet them all the time? I will call them out. But I'll call them out now in rather a gentle way. You know, over over the, you asked me earlier about interactions that ensued after the film. Mm. Um, and, of course, there was a huge rant of hate speech and, you know, people basically saying, you you deserve to be raped, you, you know, awful words, etc. And trying to engage with people like that, trying to change their minds is a complete and absolute waste of time, mm-hmm. right? So I will now gently point out, you know, I think you've just said that because uh, no one has taught you that actually uh, that woman you've just spoken of as, you know, 
whatever it is they've said, you know, or, or it's not necessarily always about gender. I mean, they may be talking about um, someone and not realize that they've actually just been racist or they've just been colorist or, you know, whatever it is. She's beautiful. She's so fair. I will always point out, look, I, I need you to just please think about, or I need to ask you to please think about what you've just said. Uh, you know, to come back to your question, uh, mm. I'm not avoiding it. It's just a very hard question to answer <laughs> because, you know, I have to tell you, Sujita, honestly, yeah. honestly, if I'm, and I, I don't like to not be brutally honest because mm. I think there's too much to do. We've got to move on and do things as quickly and as best we can. Yeah. And I think if we're going to spend a great deal of time trying to change those adults, really, we are, we might improve their behavior somewhat. But are you really telling me that a man who's beating his wife at home is changeable easily, quickly? I mean, who's going to pay to take him and her to therapy and understand why she's letting him do it mm. and understand, you know, it's not scalable. The only way we can scalably change this horrific paradigm that we have, this development emergency, is through the clean slates of the young children. So that is what I'm going to spend my good time on. Um, and, of course, there are also an enormous number of people who are taking care of those who are being raped and, and beaten, and, you know, as they must, as they have to. We can't mm -hmm. just say, oh, well, we'll give up on all the adults. Of course not. Mm -hmm. But who is actually uh, in the trenches with the young ones preventing? Mm -hmm. Not many. Mm -hmm. So I will continue to do the prevention work um, while others uh, brilliantly, and I admire them and I'm grateful that they do because I'm not doing that and I couldn't do that. I'm doing the other bit. I'm doing the prevention part. But we all have to do whatever we can because we are in a dire emergency. So, so you're saying the next three generations, still the time... The six-year-old no, no. grew up. We'll start seeing it in mm. one generation. We will start seeing it in one generation. And, do you know, every rape that is avoided, every suicide that is avoided, and believe me, we're in 20 countries now with 170,000 children and flying at the rate of knots. I've just come back from Qatar, uh, the wise... Uh, education conference. Um, mm, we yes. won the Wise Award yes. last year. I saw that too. And I've come back with two new countries who are going to be doing this wow. throughout the countries, throughout mm. in three levels. This is how you're designing the future of the world. It's, it's beautiful. I'm going to let you go because I know you have your oh. dinner get together waiting for you. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Sachita. I really love talking to you, I must say. And thank you for highly, highly incisive and intelligent questions and um, really enjoyed talking to you, Suchita. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much, Leslie. Leslie, I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. Ponder on it, think about it and come back to for the 99th episode as we move forward. Find Leslie on the website thinkequal.org and you can also find her on LinkedIn. Take care guys, have a great weekend.